the Lord. Praise God. And I tell you, it's all about the love of God. That's what, it's, that's what makes everything work. I really feel impressed uh, this weekend to be sharing some things with you. I'm going to take a teaching that I've got entitled uh, The Faith of God, or uh, Living in the Balance of Grace and Faith. And I've got a single tape on that, and I have a book. That's the very first book that I put out. But I'm going to expand that a lot. I'm going to come at that from a couple of different angles, and I believe help make uh, get this point across. But let's look over in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start here and we're going to go, we're going to be covering a lot of things. But I just want to encourage you as I share this that I think that this is one of the most foundational things that you can possibly learn. Now, I say that about everything I teach. Those of you that have heard me before, I say that a lot. But I, I teach just real simple basics. I don't go into any of the external stuff. I had somebody asking me about the rapture tonight and stuff. And, you know, I've got an opinion on that, but I don't really teach on that. I just stay on the real core, foundational type of things. And so, really, I believe that this is one of those foundational truths that God has um, shared with me. And whether you have consciously asked this question or not, you constantly deal with this subject that I'm going to be talking about this weekend. So I promise you this is going to be something that can help you And I encourage you to really let the Lord speak to you. I think it's going to make a big difference. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, I wish I had time to put all of these scriptures in their proper context, but let's just go to verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that's a familiar passage of Scripture and often you can become so familiar with passage of Scripture that you really don't know what it says. You don't pay attention to it because it's just something that is so common to you. But there are some profound truths right here. It says that you are saved by grace through faith. And often you will hear in the body of Christ. Basically, I could say it this way, that the body of Christ is divided, just like this auditorium is divided right down the middle with this aisle. The body of Christ is basically divided into two camps or two groups. Half of that is those that emphasize the grace of God. Half of those are those that emphasize the faith of God. Now, those are kind of uh, scriptural terms, religious terms that maybe you don't relate to. But here's, here's another way of saying it. Grace is what God does. Faith is what we do. And the body of Christ is basically divided over this issue. There are those who will preach that everything is just totally up to God. It is just the sovereignty of God. It's whatever God chooses. There's another group in the body of Christ that preaches, no, you've got to do this and do this and do this. And those who preach the responsibility of man to be able to do things will sit there and normally, typically sit there and say that those that are preaching that it's just all up to God are totally wrong. And those who preach that it's all up to God will sit there and preach against those who are saying, no, you've got to do some things. You know, I have people come to me all of the time and basically they, they may phrase it differently, but it boils down to this. What do I do? What part is God's part? What part is my part? And you know, there is a balance between these two. Again, I say that the body of Christ typically is divided into two camps and they will, one will emphasize one, uh, one part, either what God has to do or what we have to do. 
But according to this verse right here, it says you're saved by grace through faith. You aren't saved by one or the other. Now to be technically true, if you'll back up into verse 5 and look at this, at the back in the last part of verse 5, there's a parenthetical phrase that says, by grace are you saved. I'm not saying that it's wrong to say that you are saved by grace, but technically it is not grace alone that saves you. Now this is really important that you understand this point. Because the point that I'm going to be trying to make all this weekend is to merge what God has done for us by grace. Plus, there has to be a response on our part that the Bible calls faith. And there has to be a combination of these two. You aren't saved by grace alone. To prove that, you could turn over to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And in Titus 2, 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. If grace alone saved you, grace is what God does for you. Grace is God's part. Grace is something that was done for you before you existed. It has nothing to do with you. By definition, the word grace means unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And so if it is completely disassociated with you, if grace is something God does, and if grace alone saved, then every person would be saved. Because again, Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. God's grace is the same towards every person in this auditorium tonight. Now I want you to stop and think about that just a moment because I know that there are many of you, there's a reason that you're here. And it's certainly not to hear a guy from Texas with a hick accent. It's because you have a desire to hear from God and somehow or another God has touched your life through me and you came to learn something. You know, every one of us in here is seeking something. And the truth is, God has been exactly the same towards every person in here. You know this lady from Vermont over here that was healed and in a wheelchair and unable to move and stuff, the healing power of God that's already manifest in her life, that same healing power is all the same towards every person in here. But see, there's some people think, well, why did God heal her and how come I haven't been healed? You're going to see people healed this week. You'll see miracles happen. You'll see blind eyes open, deaf ears open in this very place. And some of you will wonder, well, why did God touch them and not touch me? See, what you're doing is thinking that when you see something happen, that all of a sudden God has done something or provided something for that person that He hasn't provided for you. One of the points I'm trying to get across is that God's grace is the same towards everybody because it's not based on what you do. It is not tied to what you do. God by grace has already brought salvation unto every person on the face of this earth. You know, I could take this one point and I could spend at least two or three weeks preaching on this because this is not something that is commonly understood. Most people believe that it's your performance that earns you extra pull, favor, power of God operating in your life. Uh, and all kinds of things. But see, the moment you begin to start relating God's blessing, manifestation of His power in your life to anything that you've done, then you've just voided grace because you have made God's blessing or power in your life proportional to something that you've done. If you think that way, then you don't understand the grace of God. God, by grace, has already provided everything for you before you ever needed it. 
For instance, most people believe that when you come and ask Jesus to come into your life, that you humble yourself, you repent, and then you say, Jesus, would you please come into my life? We'll say things like that. Just ask Jesus to come into your life. That's not what salvation is. If you take scriptural examples like Acts chapter 16, verse 31, when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail and the jailer came to him and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He didn't say, well, ask Jesus to come into your life. See if he will save you. Or repent of your sins. That's what most people say. Or quit doing this or anything. What they said was just believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe what? It's not just believe that Jesus existed. It's not just believe that He came. But, and again, this is one of those things I could develop for an hour or two. I'm going to say this quickly. So this would be good for you to take notes and maybe go study this out on your own. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did you know that Jesus didn't just die for people who He knew would accept Him someday? Jesus died for every sinner that has ever lived on this earth. And He died for our sins 2,000 years ago before you had ever committed sins. The Lord doesn't wait until you ask Him to come into your heart to forgive your sins. Here's the radical truth, but this is absolutely true, that the sins of the entire world are already forgiven. God forgave your sins before you existed. Before you were ever born, all of your sins were forgiven. Before you had ever committed a sin, God forgave your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Sin is actually a non-issue with God. Thank you for three or four, that's right. Do you know this is not the message of the church today. The church is basically preaching that every time you sin, it's an affront against God and you've got to go get that sin forgiven and under the blood before God can move in your life. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that your sins are already forgiven. You don't have to ask God to forgive your sins. You don't have to ask Him to come into your life. What you've got to do is believe the gospel that Jesus has already come. He's already died and forgiven the sins of the world. Now somebody might say, well, if that's true, well then everybody's saved, right? No, because grace alone doesn't save you. God, by grace, has made the provision and paid for every person's sins. Every per- Did you know people aren't going to go to hell for being a homosexual, for being an adulterer, for lying and for stealing and for murder? All of those sins have been paid for. The sin that is going to send people to hell is the singular sin of rejecting Jesus as their personal Savior. This is what the Bible says over in John chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. It says, But when the Holy Spirit has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then in verse 9, He explains what that sin is. He's going to reprove the world of. It's the sin of not believing on Jesus. See, the church is basically preaching, no, the Holy Spirit is here to nail you every time you lie, every time you steal, every time you don't study the Word, every time you do this and that. And what that's done is make us sin conscious and it's magnified sin. But the truth is Jesus has already paid for that. The Holy Spirit is only dealing with this one issue. Have you made Jesus your personal Lord? If you have made Jesus your Lord, then all of your sins, past present and even future sins. The sins you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. 
You know what? That'll get me kicked out of most any church. That's the reason I'm meeting in a building like this. There's not very many churches. There's not very many churches that'll let me in preaching stuff like that because it's just so radically. But And again, this isn't my point tonight. I could verify that in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 and go into a lot more explanation. But sin has already been dealt with by grace. If it's by grace, then that means it's not dependent on whether you've asked Him to forgive you or not. The truth is God provided salvation for the entire human race by grace. Again, where was that? 1 Thessalonians 2.11 says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. God's grace is exactly the same towards everybody. Not only the people in this room, but every person on the face of the earth. Did you know Hitler had as much grace extended towards him as you and I have had extended towards us? Any despot, any person who has just done terrible things in the history of the earth, Jesus loved them and paid for their sins and died for them exactly the same as He has died for the people who have accepted it and loved Him and seek Him. The grace of God is identical towards us all. God, by grace, has provided healing for everybody. Not only this woman over here, but every person in here has had every sickness already healed. It's already been provided. You know, Sid right here was a quadriplegic and now he's up walking around and doing great. Man, a quadriplegic was supernaturally healed. Every quadriplegic has had the exact same grace extended towards them. God is not different towards any of us. The moment you start saying that God... Well, why did God heal Sid? Why did God heal our sister over here? Why did God do this and He hasn't done it for me? The moment you start thinking like that, you have to factor in your performance and start saying, well, it's because I haven't prayed enough, I haven't done enough of this or that, and this is why God hadn't done it. See, that's a totally wrong thinking. The grace of God is consistent. God is the same towards everybody. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't love one person in here more than He loves another. He hasn't provided more for one person in here than He's provided for another. He has forgiven the sins of the entire human race. So does that mean that everybody's saved? No, because not everybody has put faith in what God did by grace. Now see, grace is what God does for us, independent of us, Prior to you existing, before you even had the need, God had already created the supply. Before you ever get discouraged, God has already blessed you with all spiritual blessings. He's already abounded towards you. You don't have to ask God to give you joy and peace, to heal you, to prosper you, to save you. You don't have to ask. He's already provided before you ever had the problem. Man, that's awesome. God, by grace, has already done everything. He anticipated every need that you could ever have, and He already meant all of those needs through Jesus. Jesus was how God intervened in the affairs of man. It's how He provided everything, and that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus hasn't died for a single person's sin since. Jesus hasn't healed a single person since 2,000 years ago when He took our stripes on His back. 
The healing was already provided. The salvation was already provided. The deliverance has already been provided. People today are just hearing the truth. And then when they believe, all of a sudden what God has provided by grace becomes reality when you mix it with faith. You're saved by grace through faith, not one or the other. Boy, that is a radical truth. And I'm going to be expounding on that and explaining that all weekend long. And I guarantee you this is going to make a big difference in your life. But see, it's, it's similar. I use this ex- illustration like uh, sodium and chloride. Sodium is po- poison. Chloride is poison. If you take it in sufficient quantity, sodium or chloride by themselves will kill you. And yet if you mix it together, it becomes salt and you'll die if you don't have it. Did you know that grace, if all you do is emphasize, well, it's all up to God, you know what? That'll kill you. But on the other hand, if all you do is emphasize, you've got to believe, you've got to do this, and you don't understand that your faith is just a positive response to what God has already provided by grace. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided. Faith doesn't move God. Faith doesn't make God do anything. Now see, I've been over here kind of harping on the people who haven't understood grace. Now I'm harping on the people over here who emphasize faith all of the time. And if you don't recognize that faith is just the way you appropriate what God has already provided by grace, then what that is is law legalism, and that'll kill you. That puts all of the burden on your shoulders, and that's not good either. Faith or grace, independent of each other, not mixed together properly, will kill you. Now, those are some strong statements. And I believe that this is one of the major problems in the body of Christ. We've got the body of Christ divided into those who emphasize, oh, it's just totally up to God. And they sit there and say, God is sovereign. It's whatever God wills. Que Sarah, Sarah. Whatever will be, will be. It's just up to God. Do you know what? That'll kill you. I could, I could name some people that that has killed. They're just waiting on God to heal them, not understanding that we have a part to play in this. But then on the other hand, there's people who will sit there and emphasize, you've got to pray, you've got to study, you've got to believe God, you've got to do something. And they get into this to such a degree that they think that their doing is making God move. They see their faith like a pry bar or some way of twisting God's arm and making Him perform. And that becomes legalistic. And man, that'll just destroy you. That's kind of where I came out of. I came out of a background where basically you had to do all of these things in order to earn God's blessing. I didn't understand that God had provided everything by grace and I can tell you that that'll kill you. We used to have a little poem that says uh, Mary had a little lamb. It would have been a sheep, but it joined the Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. (laughs) And that's kind of our motto that man you just worked yourself to the bone and you just did all of these things and you know what? That's not the way that it works either. There has to be a balance between these two things. So I'm going to be talking about that a lot this week. Tonight, let's turn over to the book of James and look at some verses in James. And what I'm going to do, uh, if you are only able to make tonight's service, I encourage you to please take that slip and get the entire 
teaching from this weekend because tonight's is not going to be complete if you just take it by itself. You need to combine it with all the other things. I'm going to be emphasizing how that... uh, I don't know exactly what to term. I hate to use this term because it's so popular, but it's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm teaching against uh, the sovereignty of God teaching. People have taken a truth that God moves independent of us, not based on our performance, and they have developed out of this a teaching that is commonly called the sovereignty of God, that God just moves sovereignly. And what they'll say by that is that you have nothing to do with it. Basically what they're doing is over-emphasizing grace, saying it's just totally up to God. You have nothing to do with it. God is sovereign. If it's His will, you'll be healed, and if it's not, you'll die. It's just totally up to God. Some people have taken this to an extreme. There are entire denominations that teach that certain people are predestined to salvation and others are predestined to damnation. And God predetermined it. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just totally up to God. The uh, theological term for this is Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinism was, of course, based on John Calvin who taught that everything is totally up to God. Arminianism emphasized that you have a part to play and that you can believe and receive or doubt and do without. You can control uh, to a degree the grace of God by your faith. And Calvinism will emphasize this uh, term, the sovereignty of God. You know, the NIV translation popularized this term sovereignty, 288 verses. They substituted where it says, like in the King James and some of the other translations, it'll say Lord God or Lord God Almighty. They put in the sovereign Lord. And you know, I'm not against sovereign. If you'll use sovereignty the way the dictionary defines it. Matter of fact, I even wrote that in my Bible tonight. Let me just read to you. I got this uh, definition off my computer this afternoon. Here's a definition of sovereign. If you're using it as a noun, it means the chief of state in a monarchy or a former British gold coin worth one pound. Of course, that's not what we're talking about. If you use it as an adjective, it's talking about paramount or supreme. That's the first definition. If you want to call God sovereign in the sense that He's paramount or supreme... I agree 1,000%. Zero argument. Amen. The second one, having supreme or superior rank or power. I agree to that. God is the top of the food chain. Nobody tells God what to do. He is absolutely top. So I agree with that 100%. The third definition means independent, a sovereign state or a sovereign nation. I agree with that. The United States is sovereign. No problem. We broke away from Great Britain. We are a sovereign nation. I agree with that. And I agree calling God sovereign. He is independent. Nobody gives Him orders. But where I disagree is with the religious definition. You know, I've given you three of the definitions here. Here's the fourth one. It means excellent. Sovereign means excellent. If you want to call God excellent, no argument with that. And here's what the word was translated from. It came from the Latin word that meant super or above. I agree with all of that. If you want to use sovereign the way the dictionary uses it, God is sovereign. But religion has come along and said that sovereign means that God controls everything and that nothing can happen without His permission. I disagree with that. That is not what the Word of God teaches. 
God is not sovereign the way that religion has taught that God controls everything. You know, for instance, people will die and somebody will come up and say, well, it must have been their time. They just think that nobody dies without it being God's time. I actually heard a man one time that had... I was leading the praise and worship at a uh, full gospel businessman's meeting and this guy was the speaker and he had just come from a um, funeral where two kids were killed in an automobile accident. They were drinking and doing drugs. They drove too fast on a slick, wet street, couldn't make a turn and ran into a telephone pole and it killed both of them. And he got up and talked about, well, we know that God is sovereign. We know that God works all things together for good and that God had a purpose in this. You know, people can't die if it wasn't God's will. Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. (laughs) I bet you that the majority of people in this room have said something similar to that or have heard it said and embraced it. You know why people do that? I believe it's a convenient theology. We just, we don't understand and so it's easier rather than saying, you know what, they shouldn't have been drinking and doing drugs and speeding on a wet road and they killed themselves. Rather than put any responsibility on them, we just say, well, it was God's will. It's not God's will. People die all of the time without it being God's will. It's not like God has a number in heaven and He picks your number and you just are destined to die. The Scripture made it very clear over in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Satan is the one who goes about seeking whom he may destroy. Satan's the one that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. God told us not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that we ate thereof, we would surely die. We brought death into this life. We started old age and deterioration and sickness and disease. God is not the one who controls whether you get sick or not. We started this corruption in this planet. God doesn't control all of those things. I was told when my father died at 12 years old, the pastor came over and I remember him sitting down and looking at me and he said, Andy, he says, God needed your dad in heaven more than you needed him. And even as a 12-year-old, I knew better than that. I thought, why does God need my dad in heaven? God didn't kill my dad. God didn't do that. And yet this is a cop-out. It's an easy way to deal with things. You know, the very first church that I pastored, I remember that we had a couple there that had lived in Guatemala and they uh, had a child in a taxi on the way to the hospital and the woman was a very small woman and because of it the baby was born dead and was without air for a period of time. They finally revived it, but anyway, it was a mongoloid child is what they called him back then and he had all kinds of problems, no immune system, Long story, but anyway, this boy died in my arms. I was praying for him, and I prayed for him for over two hours to be raised from the dead, and he didn't come back to life. And he was four years old at that time. And you know what? I was struggling for something to minister to the family and to minister to myself. I was their pastor, and I was struggling for something to tell them that would comfort them. And you know what? I was tempted to say, well, it must not be God's will. Just put the blame over on God. He's big. He can handle it. (laughs) I was tempted. But you know what? It wasn't the truth. 
And I told that couple, I said, look, God did not kill your child. This is not God's will. And I said, I don't actually understand why we didn't see this child healed and raised up from the dead. I said, it's either my lack of faith or your lack of faith or a combination of the two or maybe it's things that I don't even understand. But I can guarantee you God's not a baby killer. And I just had to tell those people the truth. And did you know that's not comforting at the time? It would have been much more comforting to come across with some religious thing about, well, God is sovereign. Nothing can happen but what God allows it. But it's not the truth. The Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And because I told those people the truth, it's a long story, but the woman later came back and says, you know, I had a fear because when he was born and they told me that he didn't have an immune system, if he ever got a cold, that he had died. She says, I have dreaded this for four years and when I saw him get this cold, I just knew he was going to die. And the Lord showed her some things and she found out the truth. And because I didn't take an easy way out, but I told her the truth, that woman had uh, found out where the problem was, dealt with it, and she had either four or five more children. The doctors told her never to have another child because she was too uh, small to have children. If she did have children, they'd have to be taken C-section, and probably her and the children would die. But because I told her the truth, she got hold of the Word, had four more children, natural childbirth at home because no doctor would let her uh, have children, so she just had them natural childbirth at home. And it was only a few years ago that she sent me a picture of all four of them in their caps and gowns when they graduated from college and thanked me for telling her the truth. I can understand the desire to want to make everything fit in a neat little box and have an answer for it and just, well, it must be God's will. God is sovereign. But it's not the truth. And it'll put you into bondage. If God was guilty of all of the things that He's blamed uh, for today, I guarantee you there isn't a civilized nation on the face of the earth that wouldn't persecute Him, prosecute Him, kill Him if He was a physical person. If He was the one making the babies deformed, if He was the one causing all of the deaths, if He was the one that caused marriages to fail, if God was the one sending Hurricane Katrina and all of the earthquakes and all of the natural disasters that we have in our contracts, an act of God. If God was guilty of all of these things, there isn't a civilized nation on the face of the earth that wouldn't kick Him out and keep Him from being in their country if they could do it. God is being misrepresented and lied about. And I, in my opinion, this is, you know, opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. Usually has a couple of holes in it. But here is my opinion. I think that this teaching that God controls everything sovereignly is the worst heresy in the body of Christ. Because it renders people passive. If you really believe that God controls every single thing that happens, well then what's the point in you doing anything? Why are you seeking God? Why did you come to a meeting like this? Why don't you just stay at home on your couch and eat milk duds and watch stuff? Because God's will is going to come to pass anyway. Why do you need to seek God? Why do you need to come to a conference? Why do you need to do anything? Because God's will is going to come to pass whether you believe for it or not. Brothers and sisters, that's a terrible doctrine. And you know what? Some people see the extreme of this, but they... 
They mix it when it's convenient. When somebody dies, they just say, well, it must be God's will. No, God's not the one that causes death. Satan is the author of death and we are the ones that loosed him in this earth and God is not the one that's killing anybody today. God is not killing people. And see, you can't just take part of it. You can't mix it together. You can't be part, well, I do have some responsibility, but there's some things that God just controls and God is sovereign in this area. No, it's either true that God controls everything or God does not control everything. It has to be one of those two. It can't be a combination of those things. Amen? You know, I never have understood people who get mad at me for preaching this. There are probably some people here tonight that are really upset because I'm hitting a doctrine that is so common. And there are probably some of you saying, that's of that devil. How dare him preach that? That's of the devil. Well, let me ask you this. If God controls everything, if nothing can happen without God's permission, without God allowing it, either causing it or allowing it, well, then I couldn't be preaching this if God didn't allow it. By your own doctrine. How could you be upset at me? This must be God's will for me preaching this. I don't know how anybody can argue with that logic. If God really controls everything, then God's leading me to say everything I'm saying or I couldn't say it. (laughs) You know what? If you really believe that God controls everything, then when you get sick, why would you ever go to a doctor and try and get out of God's will? Why would you ever take medicine and try and lessen the pain? If God caused that, if He's trying to teach you something, if this is going to work some redemptive power in your life, then why are you trying to lessen it? Why don't you just learn your lesson and suffer to the max? This defies logic. I believe that this... I don't believe that anybody would believe that doctrine unless you're religious. You have to be taught this and accept it on blind faith. It does not function in the natural world. Even the people who say that God is putting sickness on them will go to the doctor and try and get out of God's will. Even those who are saying God caused this marriage to fail will pray to the same God who they say causes everything and ask God to intervene. Even those who say that God is the one that caused their financial problems and God is using this because they need to be humbled or whatever will pray and ask God for mercy and help out of this. If you really believe that God just sovereignly controls everything, then there is no point in us doing anything because God's will is sovereignly coming to pass, independent of us. That is not what the word sovereign means. That's only a religious definition and a religious application of this. I'm telling you, God, by grace, provides everything. But you have complete freedom of choice whether God's perfect will for you comes to pass or not. It does not happen without your cooperation. Have you all ever heard this verse from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 that says, Now unto Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, Y'all ever heard that? Do you believe that? How many of you believe that? Some of you have heard me before. (laughs) I quoted that verse the way people believe it, not the way that it's written. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. 
If there isn't any power working in you, which is faith, if you aren't believing God, God cannot, cannot, you could say will not, it doesn't matter, He does not do anything beyond this power that works in you. It is God's will for every single person to be saved. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God, by grace, has already provided salvation for the whole world. But you have to put faith in God's grace to see it come to pass. So it makes it very clear. It's God's will for every person to be saved, but not every person is saved because not every person has responded in faith to what God has said. God's will doesn't come to pass automatically. Thank you for that thunderous silence. I guess that means that you're thinking about it. But see, people think, well, if it's God's will. I had a man tell me one time, he says, this little girl's going to be healed whether you or I pray for her or not, if that's God's will. He says God's will just comes to pass. Nope, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that every person should come to repentance and to an acknowledgement of the truth. Does God's will come to pass? No, because Jesus said there's going to be more people that enter in by the broad gate unto destruction than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. Jesus said that not everybody's going to be saved, and yet the Scripture says it is God's will for everybody to be saved. How can you put those Scriptures together and come up with any other conclusion that except that God's will doesn't automatically come to pass? You have a choice in this. God by grace provides everything, but if you don't believe, you won't receive. God's will is for every person to be healed. Jesus is a perfect example of God's will. He went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Acts chapter 10 verse 38. It says it was good that he did. He healed all that were oppressed of the devil. The Bible says in the last days people will call evil good and good evil. In Jesus' day, he said it was good that he healed the sick. Today, there are denominations that says healing the sick is of the devil. They're calling evil good and good evil. And Jesus said that it, they were oppressed of the devil. Now there's entire denominations saying, no, when you get sick, it's God doing this to you. God is humbling you. They've totally flip-flopped. They call evil good and good evil. I tell you, I'm sharing some things here that if you don't understand this, how in the world are you ever going to see the power of God manifest in your life or through you to somebody else if you don't even know what God is doing? If you're blaming God for the tragedies in your life. Have you found the book of James yet? If you hadn't found it by now, just look on with your neighbor. You aren't going to get there probably. Look in James chapter 1, verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now these verses, verses 2 through 4, have been taken and used to teach that God controls everything in your life. Let me just suggest to you that if you hadn't already been taught that and prejudiced with that concept, you wouldn't get that out of these verses. 
I don't know if you're following with me or not, but it's like an old dirt road that, you know, wagons have been down that road so many times, the ruts are a whole foot deep. And you can't even begin to go down that road without slipping into the same rut. They're just so deep, you just slip into them. Well, some of us have thought away so long that when you hear something, we automatically transpose it and translate it and interpret it in a way contrary to what the Scripture is saying. These verses do not say that God puts troubles in your life to give you patience. And yet that's what's taught out of these verses. If you want patience, then you're praying for trouble. Because tribulation works patience. That's what people have been taught. The scripture says in, in uh, Romans chapter 15 verse 4, it says that we... Let me just turn over and read that because I can't quote the whole verse exactly. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Have you got it up there? For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And hope... Um, anyway, I won't go into that, but I've got a great revelation on what hope is. But anyway, notice it says, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures. Scriptures are where patience comes from. This is andeology. This is my own little definition, but I believe I could back this up if I had time to teach on it. I believe patience is nothing but faith over a prolonged period of time. Instead of a momentary faith, patience is prolonged faith, an enduring faith. You just believe and you keep believing. And it says that patience comes through the Scripture. Just like Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith comes through the Word. Patience also comes through the Word. And it also says over in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23 when it lists the gifts of uh, the fruit of the Spirit, it says that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. When you got born again, God gave you faith and patience. My point is that patience doesn't come through hardship. If it did, then the people who have suffered the most would be the most patient. And that's not true. I defy you to show me the people who've had it the hardest that they're going to be the most holy, the most godly, the most patient. That's not true. It, patience does not come through hardship and through tribulation. But patience, if you have it at, through the Word of God and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you, it has to be used before it reaches its full strength. I'll agree with that. Here's the comparison that I use. I was drafted in 1969 and they sent me through basic training to learn how to be a soldier and they taught you how to fire a weapon and throw hand grenades and you know a lot of different things that they taught you. But when you first got into Vietnam, uh, we had jokes about people who were brand new in country because they were dangerous. All they had was head knowledge. They had never put it into practice and people like that are dangerous. And so even though they were trained, everybody was trained the same, you gain a depth of understanding how to use that training when you put it into practice. You become a better soldier when you are attacked and have to put your training into practice than you were when you just went through basic training and learned it and it was intellectual knowledge. There's a difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge. And uh, I believe that everybody can understand that. But see, if a soldier 
would have got up and have said, you know, I know that right now all I've got is intellectual knowledge and I really need Charlie Kong to come along and attack me and I'm going to be a better soldier. And so when they see the enemy coming, they stand up and run out and want to hug them and embrace them and welcome them because you've come to make me better. No, that's not how it works. You'll get killed doing that. No, the enemy didn't come to make you better. They came to kill you. Problems were not given by God to make you better. And if you believe that, then you know what will happen? You'll welcome those problems. You'll embrace those problems as being God. You will attribute evil to God, which is wrong. And Satan will use that to kill you. But there is a truth that if you recognize that this problem isn't from God, but I'm going to fight this and when I overcome it, I'm going to be even stronger because now I've put what I knew in my head into practice. It's now become experience and man, I'm going to be stronger than I was before. Well then yes, that's great. And that's what these verses are saying. It's not saying that God puts the problems on you no more than the enemy comes against you to make you a better soldier. They come against you to kill you. And see, if you ever get this confused, over in James chapter 4, it says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There are certain things you need to submit to. There are certain things you need to resist. An extreme teaching on the sovereignty of God, that God controls everything, renders uh, James 4, 7 useless. If God controls everything, if nothing happens without Him willing it or allowing it, then what's the purpose in you resisting anything? It all came from God. And if you resist it, you're going to, be wind, you're going to wind up resisting God. It makes you passive. And this is where the vast majority of the body of Christ is. When, that, when it comes to sickness, they don't know, maybe this is from God. So God, would you heal me if it be your will? And you just throw your prayer out there. And if you get healed, well, it must have been God's will. If you didn't get healed, your number must have been up. You know, let me say this compassionately, respectfully. How dumb can you get and still breathe? What a stupid theology. Nobody's ever going to receive from God like that. That's like the preacher who, somebody says, don't you tithe? And he said, sure. He says, well, I've never seen you give any money to God. And he says, yeah, I take every offering that I get and I put it in this big bucket and then I throw it up in the air and say, God, if you want anything, take it. And if, if whatever falls back to the ground, it's mine. <laughs> you know what? You'll never give a tithe doing that. You, You've got to be a little more deliberate than that. Just to throw your prayer out there and say, well, God, if it's your will, heal me. And if it's not, I, it must be your will that I'm suffering the way that I am. That is just as stupid as trying to tithe by throwing your money up in the air and asking God to take what He wants. It doesn't work that way. There are certain things that are from God. You submit to those. There are things that are from the devil. You resist those. The word resist means to actively fight against. If you don't actively fight against it, then you know what? You have submitted to it. For you to say, dear Satan, please leave me alone, is not resisting the devil. You, got to, you know, you need to get angry. And there is no way that you can get angry if you think that God has a hand in it. I actually heard a man one time who I was pastoring this little church 
And they wanted to ask this preacher to come in and preach. And I told them no, because I didn't know him. And they said, well, he was here before you were here. And so I said, well, give me one of his tapes. And I listened to it. And this guy was teaching from Romans 8, 28, and said that everything comes from God. And basically he said that he had a demonic lust in his heart for women. While he was preaching, he would be lusting after the women that were sitting in the auditorium. And he said it got so bad, he finally told his wife. They decided to go for deliverance. And he was going to get this demon cast out of him. He had an appointment set. He went out to get into his car and as he put his hand on the doorknob, he said that the Lord spoke to him. This is what he said. I don't believe it was the Lord. He said it was the Lord spoke to him and he says, you couldn't have this problem if I didn't allow it. He says, I have sent this to teach you patience and to make you holier and better and if you get this demon cast out, you're going to thwart my will. And so this guy went in, canceled his appointment, kept his demon because God gave him that demon to make him better. Now see, most of us say, oh, no way. Well, it's the same principle. How can you just interpret it up to a point and then say, oh, no, I don't believe that. I heard another, I heard a woman on television who was being interviewed and her and her daughter were both abducted at a gunpoint, taken out into a remote place and both were raped by a man and then he laid them both down on the ground and shot them in the back of the head, execution style, killed the daughter. The mother wound up living through it but she had some physical problems from it. She was on a television program saying all things work together for good. God allowed it. God's getting glory out of this. Most of us would say, oh, no, I don't believe that. Well, why not? If, if God allows it, if God is truly sovereign in the religious sense of the word to where He controls everything and nothing can happen without His permission, then that means that God's the one that's in charge of all of the terrorist attacks. God is the one that causes the rape, the deformities, the problems in this world. You can't just interpret it to where it's convenient to your situation and then say beyond that I believe it's impractical. It's either true or it isn't true. I'm telling you it's not true. God does not control those things. God doesn't do it. These verses, all they're saying is that when you come into tribulation, rejoice. Not because God brought it. You've got to resist that tribulation knowing that it is from the devil, but it's an opportunity to put your faith to work, and as you work it, then you are going to get experience, and experience is going to give you hope, and you're going to be stronger and better because you stood there and fought the devil. But if you just sit there and roll over and let these problems dominate you, thinking that, well, it must be God's will, you aren't going to be better. You're going to be destroyed by it. Matter of fact, are you still in the book of James? In James chapter 1, just for time's sake, I've got to skip some verses, but let's go on down to uh, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. The religious church today is violating this verse completely. They are saying that my temptation, my hardship, my trial, these persecutions are directly from God trying to give me patience. It says in the context, 
Don't let anybody say that these temptations, these trials, tribulations, they are going to help your patience become stronger as you put it to practice like a muscle and exercise it. But don't ever say that those tribulations are from God. Don't ever do that. And yet the church today is preaching the exact opposite of this and saying God is the source of the tragedy. That's a faith killer. It's a faith killer. You've got to understand, Jesus made it very clear, the thief comes for no other purpose but to steal, kill, and to destroy. John 10.10 But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's the devil. God is a good God. The devil is a bad devil. And anytime you get that confused and you start embracing problems and saying, Oh God, I know that you sent this to humble me and to break me and make me better. You have just crossed over into an area that I call the extreme religious sovereignty of God where God controls everything and it is a faith killer. It will destroy you. It renders you useless. God's will is coming to pass with or without you. People who believe that have to blame God for the situation of the world. Our nation becoming more and more ungodly and increasingly secular. People who believe that have to blame God for the abortion of 42 million plus babies in the United States. And it's God's will that they're all being killed because it couldn't happen if it wasn't His will. Brothers and sisters, that's going to give you such a skewed opinion of who God is. It will destroy your relationship with God. If somehow or another I had the ability to do all of the things that God is blamed for, send the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the tragedies, the sickness, the disease, the divorces, the heartbreak, the children who are rebellious, and if I was blamed for all of that stuff, and if I was the one that was killing all of these people and maiming these people and doing this, who would want to be my friend? How many of you would want to hang out with me? And yet we say God is responsible for all of this stuff and don't you love Him? <laughs> and we try and put on our most religious face and say, oh yes, I really love Him. But then you duck, you're afraid that you've done something wrong and He might put cancer on you because you deserve it. Man, that's double-minded. That is destroying people's relationships. You know, I won't mention the name of this person, but there is one of our leading people in the United States who owns a bunch of these television networks that every one of you have watched, I can guarantee you. And this man was raised in a religious home, and his sister died when they were children. And the people from church came and said, God wanted your sister. It was God's will that your sister died. And this man said, if there is a God, I hate it for killing my sister. And he today professes to be an agnostic and is doing all he can to change the Judeo-Christian ethics of the United States through his television networks. And he's doing a fairly good job by introducing all kinds of ungodliness. And it came because the religious people represented God as the one that killed his sister. And he turned against a God like that. I'm telling you what, there's a lot of people in this nation that are turning against a God who is the one who's the author of the terrorist attacks and the Katrina deal, and that's the judgment of God. That's not the judgment of God. Man, if God starts judging, He wouldn't stop at New Orleans. (laughs) 
That's not the judgment of God. <clears throat> turn over to Romans chapter 8 just for time's sake. I've got to turn over and I've got to deal with this quickly. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, here's another verse that people just use. And again, nobody would interpret this verse this way if you would use your brain for something besides a hat rack and read it in context and look at the words. But we have been taught a religious doctrine from this. There are people that couldn't tell you any other scripture in the Bible that they could quote, John. I mean, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. They could quote this verse and they don't know any other verse. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. People have interpreted this as saying, well, see now, nothing can happen but what it's God's will. This verse does not say that. There is nothing in here that blames God for everything that happens. There isn't anything that says that. It's just saying that God can take whatever happens and work it together for good, but it's got qualifications on it. For instance, in the very first word, it says and. The word and is a conjunction, tying this verse to the previous verses. In verses 26 and 27, we're talking about that the Holy Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. If you look the word makes intercession for us up in uh, the Greek. It's a Greek word, parakletos, I think is the way you pronounce it. And it literally is describing, it. the word means that He takes hold together with us, is what that word literally means. Now the significance of this is, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit just automatically intercedes for you. It doesn't mean that you are sufficient in yourself without the Holy Spirit. But when you start doing what you know to do and you pray, if you will allow it, the Holy Spirit will take hold together with you and intercede and give supernatural results. Now, the significance of this is it doesn't happen automatically. You have a part to play in this. Now that's significant because see there's some people that just say well all things work together for good. No it's not working together for good if you aren't operating in intercession and I mean not just a human intercession but an intercession where you are energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. Operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. When that happens then when this Holy Spirit gets involved and you are operating in supernatural intercession then you can say that we know that all things will work together for good. And then there's two other qualifications on it. In verse 28, it says it works together for good to them who love God. And this verse is constantly taken out of context and just said, well, God works all things together for good. This example that I mentioned earlier, a man said that these two teenagers who were doing drugs and alcohol and missed a turn and died that, well, God works all things together for good. Those kids didn't love God. I'm not trying to be mean towards them, but I, you can tell by your actions. A person that says that they love God and doesn't live like it, they're a liar is what the Bible says in 1 John. If you're out doing drugs and alcohol and breaking the speed limit and going against the law of inertia, going too fast around the corner, you know what, you can say what you want to, but there is no indication that these kids loved God. And he says, well, we know that God took them. We don't know that. There's people that die and go to hell. Not every person that dies automatically goes to be with God. It depends on your decision. I remember Jamie and I were over in England in France when Princess Diane 
Diana died in, her, uh, in that car wreck. And we were in England, and a Baptist pastor was asked by one of the kids in the church about did Princess Diana go to heaven? And he says, well, it depends on whether she knew God or not. And they took that out of context. They put on the headline of all of these papers in the UK, Baptist pastor says Diana in hell. And people got mad. I mean, literally, they were, they were uh, fearing riots and things like that in England because somebody challenged and said, if she didn't make Jesus her personal Lord, she went to hell. And man, people got upset over that. But that is absolutely true. And there is no indication. She went to a, a seance or a, what was it, a palm reader the week before her crash and stuff, there's no indication that she was truly born again. If she wasn't born again, she went to hell. Not because of all of her individual sins, but because she didn't make Jesus her personal Lord. Now that's offensive to some people, but it's the truth. You have to believe in order to receive. And for somebody to even approach the fact that a person could die and and go to hell, man, some people get offended at this. And so therefore, at funerals, they just sit there and say, well, two kids, high on dope, drinking, rebellious, staying out late, violating all of the rules. God worked this together for good and we know that they're in heaven. And It's not true. God didn't do that. As far as we know, those two kids were, went to hell. And you know what? There are consequences for your actions. You know, really, what I believe that this religious doctrine about the extreme teaching on the sovereignty of God, what it is, it's the same thing we see in the secular world where people are refusing to accept responsibility for their actions. And rather than say that I've got a problem with drinking, no, it's a gene. I can't help it. It's in my genes. They now have supposedly diagnosed a gene that makes you depressed a gene that makes you for everything. You aren't responsible for anything. You just blame somebody, everything. You blame your society. You blame the color of your skin. You blame your lack of money or somebody else's at fault. In our society today, nobody is responsible for anything. If you can't find anybody else, just blame your dysfunctional family. But the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. He not only gave you this quiz, but He gave you the answer to it. (laughs) Choose A, life, B, death. And then He says in parentheses, A is the answer. Amen. (laughs) Choose life. But notice that He gave you the choice. You have the ability to choose. Satan didn't make you a jerk. You chose to be a jerk. You may have had some bad things happen in your life that, you know, made it harder on you than somebody else, but nobody, the devil himself, cannot do anything to you without your consent and cooperation. You know, according to psychology today, I can't be normal because my dad died when I was 12 and I grew up in a home without a father and I'm bound to have all of these problems. Some of you probably seriously wonder whether I'm normal or not. (laughs) But my mother just turned 95 two days ago and she said that, uh, you know what, that I never gave her a moment's 
problem. I didn't go through rebellion. I grew up loving my mother and not going through rebellion and doing this. And part of the reason is I didn't know that you had to be messed up if you didn't have a father. (laughs) Nobody told me I had to have these problems. I tell you what, we are in our secular society, nobody's going to accept responsibility for anything. It's your fault that I'm the way that I am. There are some people today that want to look at the terrorist. And instead of blaming them for attacking this nation, oh no, it's the United States that made these terrorists the way that they are. Give me a break. Don't even get me started on that. That's not right. But you know what? This extreme sovereignty of God is the religious church's uh, counterpart to this secular world that refuses to accept responsibility for anything. We just blame God. God's in control. All things work together for good. No, God can take things and work them together for good, but God doesn't cause those. First of all, it's dependent upon the Holy Spirit has to be interceding through you. Second thing, you have to love God. The third thing in Romans 8, 28, it says, for them who are the called according to His purpose. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest that He might destroy the works of the devil. The purpose of God is to destroy the works of the devil. So if you aren't resisting the devil and fighting against this problem, if instead you've embraced it as, oh God, thank you for giving me cancer, then that's not going to work together for good. It only works together for good if you are resisting it, out to destroy the works of the devil, if you love God, and if you will let the Holy Spirit work through you, then you can take anything that the devil throws at you and it'll work together for good if you're doing those things. But if you are embracing it and saying, God, thank you for sending these trials into my life, it's not going to work together for good. It'll kill you. It'll kill you. You know, my oldest son, Joshua, when he was just one year old, I was loading lumber one day to make a little bit of extra money when I was pastoring this church in Seagaville, Texas, and it was hot. And we were in a lumber yard that was paved. It wasn't paved with asphalt. It was just dirt. And Joshua had been out running and playing. It was over 100 degrees, and it came his nap time, and he wanted to lay down in this dirt and take a nap. And he was sweaty from running around, and I knew he'd be a mess. I knew Jamie wouldn't like this. And so I took him and put him in the cab of this uh, semi-truck that we were loading, and the window to that cab was up over my head. And when I put him in there, I rolled the windows down because it was so hot, and I told him to lay down and take a nap in the cab of this truck. Well, he revived when he got up in the cab of that truck. He'd been wanting to get up there all day long. So he... Woke up and now he was looking out the window and waving at me in the rear view mirror and the side mirror and doing these things. I went up and told him to lay down and take a nap. He got up and disobeyed me. I finally spanked him and told him he had to lay down and take a nap. And yet Joshua leaned out of that window and was trying to wave at me in the side view mirror and he fell out of that truck, one year old, hit his eye on the running board and landed on his head right on that Uh, ground. And you know, it could have killed him. Could have broken his neck. Could have caused some serious damage. And boy, he was laying on the ground crying. I went up and hugged him and held him and prayed over him. And when he finally quit crying, then I said, Joshua, 
This is what I was telling you. If you would have obeyed me, this wouldn't have happened. And I used that negative circumstance to teach him a lesson. But if Joshua would have been like most Christians, he would have gone out and told all of his friends, oh, my dad is such a wonderful dad that he pushed me out of the cab of that truck and he gave me a black eye and made me land on my head to teach me to obey him. You know, if anybody could prove that a parent does stuff like that, I guarantee you the welfare would come and take you away and lock you up because that is not the right way to discipline your children. And yet this is what Christians are saying. Oh, God's the one that made me quadriplegic because this glorifies God. And I know I'm getting real personal here. You know, there are people who are quadriplegics and blaming God for it. And the truth is that they jumped off of a rock into a pool of water that had a sign there, do not swim. And they went ahead and disobeyed, broke their neck, became quadriplegic, and then said, God did this to me to get my attention. There is no doubt that God used it because this person turned to the Lord when they were laying there quadriplegic and now... Uh, there was nothing else to do but listen to God. And God has used it. And this person glorifies God and gives a lot of glory to God and leads people to the Lord. But God didn't do that to them. That is a misrepresentation of God. God didn't do it. So the point I've been trying to get across tonight is, see, it's grace. But You've got to, if all you do is take grace and say it's just totally God, we have nothing to do with it, we can't affect God's plans, God's will automatically comes to pass, we have nothing to do with it, then instead of it being a true biblical grace, it becomes an extreme religious sovereignty of God to where God controls everything. Nothing happens without His permission. And that is a faith killer. If you really believe that, just go out and live in sin because after all, you couldn't do it if it wasn't God's will. Go out and be as carnal as you want to because it couldn't. you couldn't do it if God didn't will it. That just defies logic. Only a religious person would believe that. Brothers and sisters, that is not true. But that's where that kind of thinking leads. And see, that's taking a few scriptures that talk about that God is all-powerful and that God knows the end from the beginning and just taking it to an extreme. You know, I wish they had time tonight. I need to quit because I realize I've gone a long time. But if you were to go into Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, it talks about predestination and foreknowledge. There's only two places in Scripture that predestination is mentioned, and that's Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, and Ephesians chapter 1. So there's four scriptures total that mention predestination. And actually it's only two different instances. And uh, yet this is a major doctrine in the body of Christ. Some people believe that God just has predestined all of these things. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For those who He did foreknow, He did predestinate. The key to understanding predestination is that God only predestined those who he foreknew. Foreknowledge is talking about those who he through his wisdom could see what the end result was going to be. Only people who he knew would already accept Jesus have been predestinated. Nobody's been predestinated to be saved or lost. 
But once you get born again, God has predetermined, predestinated that you will be conformed to the image of His Son. If you don't cooperate in this life, then it'll happen when He comes. 1 John 3, 1, when we see Him, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. If you will cooperate with God, then you can start being like Him here in this life. You can start walking in joy and peace and victory and anointing and power. But you are predetermined. If you've been born again, you are going to be like Jesus. If you'll cooperate, you can experience it here in this life. To a degree. To the degree that you'll renew your mind. If you don't cooperate, you're eventually going to be like Jesus anyway because you're going to be like Him when He comes. And you're predestined to that. That's all that means. God didn't predestinate any of you to be a mess. God didn't predestinate a single person in here to be a failure. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. God has good plans for you. He has a plan for every person. He has a destiny. You didn't happen accidentally. Whether your parents knew you were coming or not, God knew. God has a plan for you and He didn't plan a single one of you to be mediocre. He didn't plan a single one of you to be a failure. He didn't plan the hurt and the heartache that you've had. God did not plan the tragedy. If you had a terrible childhood, that was not God that caused that to come to pass. It's because God gave people, individuals, free choice and free will and people have made the wrong choices and sometimes you suffer because of other people's wrong choices. But God didn't determine this. God doesn't control people like chess pieces and make everything happen. If you've had terrible tragedies in your life happen, God didn't do it. My dad died when I was 12 years old, but God didn't kill him. I take great comfort in that, that God's a good God and didn't kill my dad. I've had a lot of negative things happen. I've been kidnapped. I've had things happen to me, but God didn't order it. God's not the one that caused my problems. At the very least, it was the devil, and half of the time or more, I was helping him. I was cooperating. But man, it blesses me to find out that God's not my problem. God's not your problem. You aren't just saved. It's not just all up to God. That's grace. Grace is what God does for you, independent of you. But it doesn't come to pass in your life unless you learn some things and know how to cooperate. And I'm going to be sharing that tomorrow. And we'll be talking about this and putting all of this together. And I think what this is going to do, it's going to help you to understand what's God's part and what's your part. And it's going to help you to put faith in what God has done instead of faith in what you have done. It's going to get you to a place where you will understand the power and the authority that God has given you. And it will give you some answers that will make a difference in your life. I'm just telling you, my own personal life, if I hadn't got these things straightened out, we wouldn't have seen near the things that have come to pass in our life. The things of God don't come to pass automatically. If you don't pursue them, you won't get them. You have to pursue the things of God. You know, it's like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've had people come before and say, well, if God wants me to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, I'm ready. It's just up to God. And if God wants to give it to me, I'll get it. That's not how it happens. 
I guarantee you, if you came and approached salvation that way, if God wants me to be saved, I'll receive it. It's just up to Him. No, you have to believe. You know, when I was a little kid in vacation Bible school, I'm ending with this, believe it or not. And I'll use this to go right into an invitation. But when I was a little kid in vacation Bible school, there was about this many people in a vacation Bible school. And normally, my family sat right down here on the front row. We were like skunks that came to church. We had our own pew. It was our pew. That was where we sat. And so I always sat right here on the front row. But because this was a vacation Bible school, they marched us in according to our classes. And I was at the very back of the auditorium. And this man stood up there and he took out a dollar bill and he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that comes up here and takes it. And instantly there was 20 or 30 kids just around him, just jumping up and down saying, I want it, I want it. And I was back there at the back thinking of all the times to be sitting on the back row, this was the worst time. But this guy just ignored him and he kept his hand up in the air and he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that comes up here and takes it. And all of us were wondering, well, what's he saying? You know, all of them want it. He just stood there and he says, I'll give this dollar. And finally it hit my lightning fast mind what this guy was saying. And I got out of my chair and I ran all the way to the front. I pushed my way through those kids and he had his arm up like this. And I reached up and grabbed his arm and climbed up his side and grabbed that dollar bill out of his hand. And when I grabbed it, he looked at me and he said, Now you are the first kid that come here, up here and took it. He said, All of you wanted it, and it was available, but you have to reach out and take it. He says, I'll give it to the first kid who takes it. And then he taught that that's how salvation is. See, God has already provided the forgiveness of sins for every person, but it doesn't just automatically come to pass. It's not just grace alone that saves you. You have to believe You have to reach out and take it. You have to come against the thoughts that the devil tells you, oh, God couldn't love you that way. You're too ungodly. You have to fight through those things. You have to persevere. You have to reach out and by faith say, I believe what God's Word says, and you have to take it. It doesn't come to pass automatically. It's the same thing with everything else in the Christian life. God has already provided it, but are you going to sit there and just say, que Sarah, Sarah? Whatever will be, will be. And just sit there and blame God if your life is a mess. Or are you going to stand up and say, God has provided something better than this for me. And praise God, I'm going to find out what my part is and do what God has told me to do and receive the miraculous power of God. It's your choice. And you know, the very first thing I'd like to ask tonight is if there's anybody here that hasn't made Jesus Christ your personal Lord You've heard enough of the gospel tonight to be born again. 